Good morning, church. You hearty souls. Wow. Good to see you. If you've joined us online uh, this morning at 10 o'clock, welcome to you. We're thrilled to have you. Um, we assume you're warm wherever you are. So God bless you. Hey, today I want to talk about extra extravagant generosity. Everyone say extravagant. We don't use that word much, but it's a good word. And so today, extravagant generosity. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John's Gospel, chapter 12. I want to read uh, the first eight verses there. This is a really cool story of, of a dinner party where Jesus is in attendance and a woman named Mary does something really extravagant. Uh, our custom is to stand to hear God's word, so as you're able to do that, thanks. And this will help keep the circulation going. You don't want to get frozen in place. Verse 1, six days before the Passover... Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you but you will not always have me. May God inspire and instruct us today through this wonderful story. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Beth and I have two sons. Our oldest, Aaron, had just earned his first paycheck from his first job out of the university. This was a good day for everyone. He's, he's off the family dole. He's got his own job. It's a very good job, which he had won against lots of competition, so his first paycheck was impressive. And it was equivalent to about six months of income from his part-time job while he was in school the year before, so it was rather dramatic for him. He called me, and I heard real anxiety and stress in his voice. Dad, he said, I just received my first paycheck. Congratulations. But then with the incredulity in his voice, he asked this question, am I really supposed to give 10% of this to my church? I said, well, Aaron, I can hear that this amount is causing you real hesitation, so I'm going to pray that God reduces your income to a level where you're more comfortable with tithing from it. No, no, don't do that, Dad. And I said, well, you know. That's kind of where we are. Long pause. Long pause. You could, you could hear the, the gears turning. And then all he said was, I got it, Dad. Thanks. Click. And he hung up. That's the last time he's called me about that kind of question. Why his pastor doesn't send me a thank you card every year, I have no idea. You know, maybe just a little at Christmas. Thank you so much. Your son is very generous. Amazing. Well, this story reminds us of generosity. And 
One of the challenges that we have, the opportunities that we have in life is to be generous toward God. And the reason we want to be generous toward God is because he has been generous toward us. Yes. Yes, he has. Uh, there, there's an amen there. He has been generous toward us. And actually, he's more than generous toward us. He's extravagant toward us. Extravagant in his generosity toward us. This is an amazing story in John chapter 12. It is a graphic contrast of two different attitudes about giving and generosity. You have Judas Iscariot on one hand who's, who's being selfish about this and, and uh, tight-fisted, and you have Mary on the other extreme who's giving this lavish gift. I mean, this is a, this is a perfume that, she, that is contained in this beautiful alabaster jar. We learn, we learn about some of the more details of this story from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, uh, there's a parallel story there, the same story from a different perspective. This beautiful jar, she breaks this jar. She pours it on Jesus. It flows down over his body, down to his feet. He takes her ha- she takes her hair and wipes his feet with her hair. It is very poignant. It is very pungent. It is very powerful. And, 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 the other disciples are confused by it, and Jesus actually, Judas actually says out loud, this perfume could have been sold, the money given to the poor to help some people. This is outrageous. And, and so this moment ensues. It's, it's, it's not only filled with the, the pungent aroma of this perfume, but the, the conflict, the contrast, if you will, between a person being extravagantly generous and a person like Judas being being perfectly selfish. Can I just use that as our first point? The reason I got to selfish is because I just thought about myself. What am I half the time when it comes to being generous? I have this tension. I don't know about you. Maybe I'm the only one, but maybe you struggle with this too. The difference between actually being generous out of my my care for people in need or my sense of gratitude for all God has given to me and blessed me with, that, the tension between that and just being selfish. Yeah, but I want or I think I need. And so I live in the tension of that. If someone, if someone were to ask me, are you a selfish person or a generous person? I would say, yes. <laughs> it just all depends. I, can I get a witness anywhere? This, these are things that people struggle with. And so it's breathtaking almost that Judas, in the middle of this moment, would be so, so selfish and so demanding and so judgmental. Uh, John 12, 6 from our text today, it actually says, he said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. So Judas... This is, this is, this is fascinating. Um, he didn't care for the poor. He's only thinking about himself because he was a thief. Okay. So here's my question. Do you suppose Jesus knew that he was a thief? Nod your head like, yeah, he knew. Why in the world would he give Judas the money box? Why would you give someone a job that you know they're, they're tempted in that category, in that area? Here's the answer. The reason Jesus gave Judas the money box was an opportunity, knowing that he's weak and he was tempted to pilfer from the box, he knew that, but it was an opportunity 
for Judas to overcome his temptations and to grow in his character and become, become the kind of man that he needed to be. Now, we all know that, that Judas failed the test, but oftentimes, God will actually place us in positions where we're vulnerable in order to help us, to teach us, to instruct us, to help us to grow, to get stronger, to get better. You think about that. Maybe you're in a relationship, maybe you're in a job, maybe you're in a circumstance, maybe you're in a a form of ministry, and you know that you have vulnerabilities and weaknesses associated with those relationships and responsibilities, and you need to ask, okay, what is God helping me to become? What opportunity is God presenting to me, even in the midst of a moment where I'm vulnerable, so that I can be strengthened in my character and nature? It's, it's It's a great question. So a person with a consumer, let me put this on the screen. This is, a, this is about folks who get so selfish, even when it comes to their participation in church and whether or not they're going to be generous or not. A person with a consumer mentality arrives at church looking for what's in it for me instead of focused on what they can do for the Lord. It, it happens when, when folks come to churches with, with this attitude. You know, I... I have needs in my life, and that church is meeting my needs, and as long as that works, that's good. But as soon as the church disappoints a person who's have a, who has a consumer mentality, then that person will disappear from the church. I heard, heard this story from, from a guy who was stranded on a deserted island for 10 years. They finally found him and were going to rescue him. They discovered that he had built three huts. The rescuer said, what are these three huts? He said, well, the first hut, he said, that's where I live. That's my house. Oh, great. What's the second house uh, hut? And he said, well, that's my church. That's where I go to church. Interesting. Nice that you would build a hut for that purpose. What's the third hut? The rescuer asked. And the deserted man said, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> Which is really funny in a distorted kind of way. So selfishness only cares about itself. Think about this. Um, Money, I think, is a bigger test than you think. Let me explain. You're being tested. I'm being tested all the time around the subject of money. And it's vital that we understand this truth. Here's Here's a statement that I believe to be true. See if you agree. The extent of the responsibility you will have in the kingdom of God is directly proportional to how you handle money. The influence that God gives you will be in direct proportion to how you handle money. You say, that's, that's hyperbole, that's an exaggeration, that can't possibly be true. Well, if you doubt, uh, look at the screen at Luke chapter 16. This is Jesus speaking. He says, therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, so he, he describes money in, in the terms of an unrighteous mammon. Last week, I tried to define money for you, that it's amoral, it ha- it's not good or bad. It's merely utilitarian. It's a means of exchange. It, 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 it is not something that you should have a relationship with, uh, an emotional connection to that's not helpful to you. It's just money. It's, you're not taking it with you. It has no value beyond this life. And so it's, it's just a tool that can be used. And that should be our attitude toward it. Jesus now calls it, in this context, unrighteous mammon. In other words, 
obsessed too much, connected too emotionally to the subject of money. So he says, if you've not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, which really doesn't amount to anything, has, has no lasting benefit whatsoever, money, who will commit to your trust the true riches? Jesus is saying, if you can't take care of something simple and, and utilitarian like money, how can I be, trust you with things that are truly valuable, the true riches? He goes on to say, and if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? So by implication, he's saying what's really important, what's really valuable are the things you should focus on. And if you can't get the money part right, which is just an easy utilitarian part of living your life as a good steward and manager of God's resources, then how can I trust you with the really important stuff? And what are the really important things? What are true riches? I'll tell you what they are. They're people. The privilege of seeing people you know and love come to a meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. Those are true riches. True riches are spiritual gifts like serving and mercy and leading and teaching and giving. These are the true riches. True riches are being able to help others who perhaps have spent their entire lives in darkness and discouragement, dysfunction, addiction, and suddenly they see a light and the chains fall off of them. Because of the transforming power of Jesus Christ, preached through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a true riches. What's another true riches? Souls transformed for eternity because the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that transforming agent. These are true riches. These are the things Jesus are, is referring to. And so those are the things we should focus on. And so we have to overcome our selfishness. Here's the second thing we learn from this passage, and it's the subject of extravagance. Let me explain. This battle going on between selfishness and generosity we, we all experience, we, we need to win this battle. Generosity has to win. And let me tell you something about generosity that will help you recognize it when you see it. Generosity is often extravagant. Would you agree that this story of Mary breaking a bottle of perfume worth a year's wage is an extravagant gift? I mean, we can notice that, can't we? It's noticeable. I, I find it difficult to understand, but the truth is that many, many Christians, many, many followers of Jesus struggle with this whole subject of giving. Now, I'm talking to most people in the room. I realize I'm preaching to the choir. I'm talking to a lot of people and watching online who are extremely generous, extravagantly so. We have numbers of people. I said this statement last week. I'll say it again. The most generous people who live in Muncie, Delaware County are sitting in this room and watching online. I know that just to be true. And so I understand most of you practice extravagant generosity by nature and good for you. So this is an encouragement, confirmation. But I may be talking to someone like me who struggles with selfishness from time to time. We have to overcome this. There is a... a uh, a number of beautiful examples in the scripture of extravagant giving. For example, King David wanted to build the temple in Jerusalem. He's the one who founded Jerusalem as the capital city of the nation of Israel a thousand years before Jesus, and he wanted to build the temple. God didn't allow him to, and so he set up his son Solomon to be the one who would actually oversee the construction of the temple. So David left an offering 
in place before his death, and that offering, if you translate it into today's currency, would total about $25 billion. Now, that's an extravagant gift, $25 billion, even for a king. And so we have that as an example. Uh, king Solomon, David's son, became known as a very, very wise man. You may recall how he became so wise. In 1 Kings chapter 3, we have the story of the coronation of Solomon as king of Israel. And part of the protocol, you know, there's this pomp and circumstance, there's this, uh, this coronation ceremony that has protocols. One of the protocol was a sacrificial point of reference. And so the new king, Solomon, who's maybe 19 or 20 years old at the time, he br- he's supposed to bring a bull to be sacrificed as a burnt offering before the Lord in this coronation ceremony. Well, Solomon shows up the day of the coronation He doesn't have one bull. He doesn't have 10 bulls. He doesn't have 100 bulls. He brings 1,000 bulls. Now, this isn't in the text, but you can imagine his advisors going, "Uh, Solomon, dude, the protocol only calls for one bull. You you didn't bring a handful. You brought 1,000 bulls. I mean, we're going to be here all day butchering these bulls and offering them to the Lord as a burnt offering. And Solomon says, my heart is to do a thousand. We'll do a thousand. Well, at the end of the day, God notices Solomon's extravagant gift and says to Solomon, listen, I've, I've noticed you and I'm, I'm pleased with your sacrifice. And so here's my offer to you. Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you. Whoa, that's a moment. Have you ever had Almighty God look at you and say, whatever you ask for, I'll give it to you? Has that ever happened to you? I want to clue you in on something, you know, as uh, we get closer to retirement, Beth and I, I'm kind of letting you in inside a little further than otherwise. About two and a half years ago, God said the same thing to me. I'll give you whatever you ask. I was studying this passage in 1 Kings 3. Solomon was 19, 20 years old. He said in response to this invitation that God gave him to ask for anything, he said, look, I'm young. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm over my head. This is a great nation, and I'm inexperienced, and I don't have what it takes to lead this great nation, and I want to do so honorably, and so please Oh, God, if you'll give me whatever I ask, I ask for discretion and understanding and wisdom so that I can lead these people well and honorably. And God was very pleased with what Solomon asked for, very pleased with that. And God said, since you didn't ask for status and money and and victory over your enemies, those those sorts of things, because you didn't ask for that, but instead you asked for wisdom, God said, I'm not only going to give you wisdom, more wisdom than any man who's ever lived, but I'm also going to give you all the other stuff too. It's a big day for Solomon, very important day. About two and a half years ago in studying this passage, I was in a private quiet moment in my study and, and God spoke to me and said, what would you like to have? Solomon asked for wisdom, what would you ask for? And about two years ago, I stood in this pulpit and I shared with the entire church this moment that I'm describing to you right now, and I said, I did give God an answer that day, what I want, what I desire. 
And I said to you, if any of you have interest in knowing what I asked for, I would be glad to tell you. And I reserved it for a private moment for anyone who would ask. In the last two and a half years or so since I shared that with everyone, three people have asked me what I asked for. I thought there might be more interest in that. But maybe I was presuming. I'd be curious to know what you would ask for. wonder what Pastor Greg would ask for in a moment like that. Last week, I, I shared with you that Union Chapel is flourishing right now. In every measurable category, Union Chapel is flourishing in a historic way. People have asked me, people curious, other leaders, how can you explain this? What, what, do, you, what do you know about this? And I confessed last week that I really can't give a thorough answer to the question. I suggested where leadership is trusted and the vision is compelling, people are made confident in their giving, their support, and that sort of thing, their participation. I think that's part of it. But what I really think is going on, and if I were really pushed into the corner, explain this, if you can. I think what's going on is in direct response to the day God said to me, ask me for anything you want, I'll give it to you. And since vast majority of you really apparently have no interest in knowing what I ask for, I'll just tell you. Are you interested? When God asked me, and gave me this offer. I will confess to you that what flashed across my mind in a half a second later uh, was a Porsche 911 GT3. <laughs> Just so you know, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I don't have a halo or anything. But in the next moment, I heard myself say out loud, and I was in the house by myself. It was dead quiet. I heard myself say, I want souls. Give me souls. God said, I will. Since then, we've baptized 500 people, planted 30 churches who are baptizing people every week, planted 20-some churches in prisons. Since then, two and a half years, people coming to faith all over the, all over the United States and other parts of the world in historic numbers. That's what's going on. That's what I asked for. You may be a soul in this room or a soul within the sound of my voice right now that God has put his hand on because of my prayer. 
Today may be your day. You've waited long enough to get right with God. And here you are. You're in the middle of this story now. You're in the middle of my story. And what God is doing. Jesus stood next to the temple one day with his disciples, and along the sidewall of the temple in Jerusalem, there were these uh, like uh, horn-shaped, semicircle horn-shaped receptacles that were installed on the side of the temple, and these were receptacles for people to drop offerings in. So they could bring coins along, and they'd just drop it in here, and they would filter down into the basement where they would be collected and counted. And so Jesus was with the disciples one day just watching people drop their offering in. It was fast, it's a fascinating story because every time some guy with a big bag of coins would come along and make a lot of noise and make a big fuss, you know, dropping a, a lot of money in the offering, the disciples would, would, would stand up and go, yeah, now there's a big hitter. Boy, that's a guy's impressive. You know, you look at her. She's really, she's really a generous person. And Jesus is napping. I mean, he's ho-hum around the whole thing until this, this obscure, nobody even noticed her, She's walking through the crowd. She's a, an older woman. She's a widow. She's pitiful. There is no social security. There is no safety net for her in this culture. She's a widow, and she's alone, and she doesn't have anything, and she's all frail, and she's wearing rags, and she's got this little leather purse, you know, cinched up at the top with a little leather string, and she goes up to one of these receptacles, and she opens up her little purse. She reaches in. She pulls out two mites. It's like two pennies, less than two pennies, not worth two pennies, two mites. She pulls them out of her little purse, drops them in the receptacle. No one even sees her. No one even notices. You can't hear it. You can't see her. She's like, and she's invisible. She's irrelevant. And in that moment, Jesus jumps up and he points and he says to the boys, now there, that's the biggest offering of the day. That's the most extravagant gift that's come through the temple today. Two pennies. And, and the disciples said, she, just, she put in two mites. What are you talking about? He said, that's the most extravagant gift because she gave everything she had. That's an extravagant gift. If you ask Jesus someday in eternity, who had the most extravagant gift in the Bible? Was it, was it King David when he gave $25 billion to build the temple or was that widow with two mites? Jesus will smile and say, oh, the widow had the most extravagant gift. It's never about the amount. It's always about your motive. It's always about your intent. It's always about your devotion to Christ. On a remote hill one morning, a man named Abraham, who had been promised by God that he would be the father of a great nation, gathered up his little son. Abraham was promised that he would be the father of a multitude, but he had no children. And he and his wife were getting older and older, and he had to cling to that promise the best he could. And so when he was 100 years old and his wife, Sarah, was 90 years old, they conceived and had a baby. It was a miracle. And here, here came little Isaac into the world, and Isaac's now just barely an adolescent, and God speaks to Abraham, and he says, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son of promise, this miracle boy of yours, this Isaac, this son of laughter, and I want you to take a fire pot, and I want you to take a load of wood, and I want you to go up on a mountain that I will point to, I'll send you to, and I want you to take your son up there and put him on an altar and sacrifice him to me. I want you to take his life 
in order to serve me. And Abraham, obviously conflicted, confused by the whole experience, takes little Isaac up on this hill. God finally points to up on that hill, and he climbs up on this, this, this mountaintop, this hillside, and he puts little Isaac on an altar, and he raises a knife. He's going to take his life of his only son, the son of promise. And in the last moment, God, God interrupts him and says, no, no, don't do it. And God had a lamb that was hung up in the thicket, and God said, I'll provide the lamb for the sacrifice. You let your son go. He said to Abraham, this was a test, and you passed the test, and your faith has now been counted to you as righteousness. Abraham had enough faith to believe that even if he took the life of his own son, that God, by his power, would raise him up because he's the son of promise. (laughs) Thousands of years later, scholars believe this to be true, and I do too, that on that very hill, probably on that very spot, is where Jesus Christ climbed to Calvary, hmm? on Golgotha's hill, where our heavenly Father sacrificed his own son, not delivering him from death, but unto death, sacrificed him for the sins of the world. That's an extravagant gift, friends. That's extravagant. And we are the beneficiaries of it. Who? Look on the screen with me. God is the ultimate extravagant giver. He is generous. He wants to do a work on our hearts that makes us more like him. Why was Mary so extravagant that day when she poured out a year's wage worth of perfume? It could be, this is John chapter 12. In John chapter 11, her brother Lazarus has gotten sick and died. He's been dead for four days. Four days dead. They've wrapped him up. They've put him in a tomb. They rolled the stone across it. Jesus shows up in Bethany, their hometown, and Martha, one of the sisters, says, if you had just been here, this wouldn't have happened. Mary says, our, our brother is dead. Is there anything you can do about it? And he says, come with me. And he takes them out to the cemetery with some friends. And they stand there. He says, roll away the stone. They said, uh, it's been four days. Are you sure you want to roll the stone back? Jesus said, roll the stone back. And then he calls forth Lazarus. He resuscitates this guy who's been dead four days. This is in John chapter 11. Now in John chapter 12, the same Lazarus, he's at the table this night at the dinner party. Martha is there serving, and Mary is there, and she breaks this alabaster jar. That's the night. Could it be that Mary now has a whole different perspective because of the miracle of the life of of her brother, that she has a whole different perspective on material things and possessions? Maybe her love and gratitude and devotion to Jesus is superseding everything else so that she doesn't care anymore how much it costs, but she only cares about honoring Jesus in the most lavish, extravagant way that she can. And out comes the alabaster jar. She's so full of gratitude, so full of thankfulness, so, so grateful to God that her brother is alive again that she gives everything she has. It's extravagant. Maybe, maybe our perspective needs to change as well. Because when you think about it, if we know Jesus, all of us have been raised from the dead. And here we are, alive in him. 
Well, let me just, uh, let me just remind you then from Ephesians chapter 2, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Glory to God. Glory to God. What has he done? What has he done for us? Wow. Made us alive. Last point I want to make is the whole subject of unavoidable rewards. One thing more I want you to know about generosity is that it's always rewarded. I told you that there's a parallel passage about the story in Matthew 26. Look at a couple of verses from that passage, if you will, on the screen. When Jesus was aware that the disciples were indignant and, and Judas was complaining about this gift, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not always have. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. I'm talking about unavoidable rewards. Now, we've considered what Mary's motive was. It wasn't selfish. It, it, it was everything but that. It was, it was out of gratitude and, and thankfulness and appreciation and love and devotion to Jesus for all of the blessings that had come to her and her family through his life. And so her, her heart was right in it, but she was also honored in it. She didn't give the gift expecting to be famous or to be popular or to be recognized or to be acknowledged in any way. She was just giving out of her heart as all of us should. But you cannot avoid the fact that there is blessing that follows people who are generous. And in this case, Jesus interrupts the whole moment because you got, you got this, this beautiful expression of her love as this oil, this perfume is being poured out on Jesus. She's wiping his feet with her hair. This is, this is, this is powerful. It is poignant. It is amazing. And, and this moment is happening. And now the disciples are indignant. And Judas is griping out loud. This could have been sold. Money given to the poor. Jesus finally breaks into this moment with all of these contrasting values in play. And he said, listen, you leave her alone. This isn't about the money. This isn't, this isn't about your indignation, your self-righteousness. This, this isn't even about me. It's not about the poor. It's not even about me. This moment is about her and her willingness to love so extravagantly and express her gratitude so beautifully. In fact, he says, as, 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 as long as there is time when people rehearse this story, they'll remember what she's done tonight. And here we are 2,000 years later remembering what she did. Isn't that beautiful? Generosity doesn't give to receive, but generosity is always rewarded. By God. Now, if you give, God's going to bless you. No, no power on earth can stop it. I'm sorry if that bothers you. That bothers some people. If it bothers you, I'm sorry it bothers you. It bothers people. If it bothers you, I'm sorry it bothers you. You're going to have to get used to it. You're going to have to accept it. 
The blessing of God follows people who are generous. And it's okay. It's God's way. Let me ask you one more question. We'll be done. How do, we, how do we evaluate what constitutes an extravagant gift? I mean, is it even possible to give God an extravagant gift? I mean, um, what, if, uh, what if someone actually gave a year's wage? Would you call that extravagant? I mean, this is almighty God. I mean, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Every, he owns everything. He's made the universe. What is an extravagant gift to God? There are people who could give a million-dollar gift. Here's a million dollars to help people. We have billionaires in our world now, numbers of billionaires who could give a billion dollars. Here's a billion dollars. Would you call that an extravagant gift? Is it even possible? A few years ago when we were celebrating as a church, uh, Beth and my 40th anniversary here, uh, having been pastors here for 40 years, there were some celebrations around that, and we were reflecting at that time uh, after 40 years. We went up to visit some friends north of, north of town here um, on a Sunday afternoon, and that's been three years ago or so. And on the way home, we thought, well, we'll just, what we'll do is we'll cut across country, and we'll go by the, the original Union Chapel Church. It was a cornfield church about 12 miles north of town. We hadn't been by the church for years. And we just thought we'd just go through the neighborhood, go by the old, the old parsonage, you know, where we raised our boys. We lived in that house for 20 years. And we'd just go by the house and check it out and go by the church. And we went by the parsonage and, you know, reminisce a little bit about some memories we had with the boys and that sort of thing. And, and then we got closer to the church. And you could see the church about a half a mile away as you're coming up to it, coming from the north. And as we got closer to the church, something began to happen to both of us. Neither of us said anything, but as we got to the church, we both burst into tears. We got very emotional. That's not uncommon for Beth, but that's very unusual for me. Oftentimes, if I'm having an emotional moment, I will say to her, what is happening to me? And she'll, t she'll say, you're really happy or whatever I'm feeling. And I'll go, thanks. I didn't know for sure. What was happening? Scary. Beth will just have a good cry. I said, and then I'll say, do you feel better? I feel a lot better. Everybody's different. We were both in tears. I looked at her and I said, why are we crying? She looked at me and she said, I don't know. So we began to speculate. Well, maybe, maybe we're, we're feeling sentimental. You know, it's been 40 years and and all these wonderful people we've met over the years, you know, and these friends, and some of, most of them, many of them are in heaven now, and, and, you know, these are warm and wonderful friendships we'll have forever, and maybe that's what's making us emotional. We, we said, well, maybe that's it, and then as we considered it, we went, no, that's good, but that's not it. That's not why we're in tears. And then we thought, well, maybe it's because of the beautiful things that God has done, these moments of God's inbreaking of his spirit in people's lives, and we have these these stories we can tell of God's goodness and faithfulness. We thought, well, maybe that's it. You know, just the, God, the blessing of God. And as we considered that, we thought, no, that's not it either. That's not why we're emotional. 
what is happening to us? And we kept driving a little bit further, and a few miles went by, and we were still trying to sort it, and finally it, it, it dawned on us. Why had it been such an emotional moment? And I, I hope you can understand this, but this is what happened to us. As we were driving by that, that old church, that little cornfield church, and we became so emotional because that church symbolized to us the giving of our lives to something other than ourselves. We were both 26 years old when we started pastoring this church. 26. We were just kids. We had one little baby. Another one was to be born. We, just had, we were just beginning, just starting our lives. And that church for us is symbolic of what we did, what we've done, which, which is we gave our whole lives. We gave the best years of our lives. We gave everything we had to something that would help others. And it made us emotional. We identify with Mary in this story because she gave an extravagant gift. And in so doing, she was saying to Jesus, look, this is all I got. This is all I am. This is all I have. This is my all in all. I symbolically in this perfume, devote myself to you. So we ask the question, can God receive and be given an extravagant gift? And I want to submit to you that there's only one thing you can possibly give to God that would constitute an extravagant gift, and that is yourself. You can give your whole, you can give your whole person, your whole life, Everything that you have, everything that you are, you're all in all. You can give it to him. And that's an extravagant gift. That's extravagant generosity. And it's the best way to live. It's the right thing to do. It's the honorable way. And if we had to do it again, we would do it. Let's pray. Lord, we know you're an extravagant God. We give thanks and praise to you for the lavish ways you have given to us. We're amazed by the extravagance that you embrace in offering us the gift of life through your son, Jesus Christ. We want to be more and more like you. So remove from us selfishness and pettiness and greed and like Mary, give us a right perspective on material things and temporal concerns. Help us to value the true riches of faith and relationships and everlasting influence. And most importantly, give us generous hearts that offer the most extravagant gift of all, ourselves, our lives, our all in all. For Jesus' sake, for his honor, 
for his glory. And we pray in his name. And everyone said, amen.